Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. In the 16th and 17th century, many of the facts that we take for granted about how babies were made were open to debate. And it's a curious period in that it's a crucial phase of change in terms of understanding the reproductive body and yet also a period in which there's huge amounts of continuity in terms of what ordinary people believed. So to investigate ideas about how conception occurred, what childbirth was, what remedies could be given to a woman in labour and to what extent men should be involved in any of this process. I spoke to Professor Mary Fissel. Professor Fissel is based in the Department of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Vernacular Bodies, The Politics of Reproduction in Early Modern England, published by Oxford University Press. And she's just finishing up another book about sex education. How did people learn about sex before sex ed? So I started by talking to her about how, in the early 16th century, people understood sex, pregnancy and childbirth. Mary, it is such a pleasure to welcome you onto Not Just the Tudors because this is a fascinating topic and I really enjoyed reading your book about this. So you start off by telling us that in 1540, a man called Thomas Reynold published the first printed book in English about pregnancy and childbirth. So what was the understanding of a woman's body, of her reproductive system in the early 16th century? Thanks, Susanna, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So the fundamentals were rooted in humoral medicine, which dated from antiquity. And humoral medicine lasted for millennia because it was a really flexible and easy to understand system. You could practice it as a physician, very high end, very complicated, or as an ordinary person, you could understand your body as being in balance, teetering between too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry, etc. And the humoral body has a strong account of why women are women and men are men. Women are basically cooler and wetter than men because it's their bodies that nurture new beings. And everybody knows that if you plant a seed in ground that's too hot and dry, the seed will shrivel up it won't live. So women's bodies were made to be reproductive, but that was within this larger system of a kind of humoral body. They were cooler and wetter, so they didn't digest their food as well. So there was like leftover stuff that the body had to deal with, and that's why women menstruated. So there's a kind of internal logic to the system that I think is very elegant and very persuasive. For example, sometimes fat women don't menstruate because that turns into fat instead of menses for them. Pregnant women don't menstruate because it's feeding the baby instead. Sometimes dancers, they're super thin. They don't menstruate either because they're kind of burning it all off. So once you sort of walk into that world of thinking, 
you can understand why it has its own logic that is actually quite persuasive. Yeah, that's really fascinating that they have this actually very logical system. One of the mistakes I think we make about people in the past is that we assume that they were terribly gullible and illogical, but it's just a different system. So how did they think conception occurred? Well, there's two dominant models of how they think about this. So in one of them, the more Aristotelian version, the male provides the blueprint for the new being and the female just provides the matter. The analogy I like to use is that it's as if the man is the architectural plan and the woman is just the bricks. So you can see there's a hierarchy of value there. Like the plan is better. I mean, you can't build it without the bricks, but it's the plan that's really the key. So in this sense, it's the male active principle that is the plan that meets the matter in the womb and sort of organizes it into being a new being. So that's one model. And I think you can see the gender hierarchy and value very easily there. The other model, which is often associated with Hippocrates, has a more what seems like equitable system in that a male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception. And then it's like a contest of strength. They kind of duke it out and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. In this way, it's also possible to see qualities mixing a little bit because many children, we know they look like their mother and their father, or maybe they look like their grandfather. And the mixing model kind of accounts for that better in some ways. My belief is that many people held both ideas depending. Popular medical books often will mention aspects of both. Both are deeply shaped by the patriarchy of the ancient world, quite frankly. It's not like either one of them is a feminist paradise, but that's sort of how they thought it all happened. It's very interesting. I recognize some legacies of that first idea in the way that we talk about conception even today, that the British jargon of he shoots, he scores, which is uh, like the idea that somehow it's all down to the man. But also, I'm fascinated by the idea that there's this contest kind of between male and female seed. Did this have implications for how the parents could be seen? So, for example, if a man had lots of daughters, does that imply somehow that his wives are superior to him? Or is it much more biological than that? There's so much we don't know today about conception. 30% of all infertility is not diagnosable to any particular cause. So I think the beginning of life is just as mysterious today in some ways as it was then. And what we're telling are imaginaries about what we think is happening in there that we can't truly know, even with today's sort of biomedical technologies. I don't think that having a lot of daughters implied a sort of deficient masculinity. I'd have to think about that. I think it's a bit more situational. It's kind of on the night. They have a lot of beliefs about actual moment of conception, how each parent is, matters, even though they don't think that like the seed is made in the instant or anything like that. It's just where they are at that moment is very significant in ways that, you know, you shouldn't have sex if you're drunk and stupid because maybe the baby will turn out to be stupid. All the pieces don't always fit together in one logical sort of jigsaw. There's layers of different ideas. There is something about the humoral system that has resonance also, just thinking about this modern context, in how we think about medicine today insofar as you know they might say well take a walk or have a hot bath or there's all this kind of mental well-being that goes into humoral health that we 
forgot basically about in medicine for centuries and now recently have re recognized it might be quite a good idea. Much of what's being advised, ancient writers would have completely concurred that, you know, that was what was necessary. They were very hot on getting enough sleep. Diet was crucial. I mean, this sounds like today and they thought feelings and passions shaped your health also. And so learning to kind of manage your emotions was really important. So some of the precepts can sound startlingly familiar to us. So let's think about how they understood childbirth. Because you talk about one idea of like a, the baby's fighting his way out of the womb. Which is fascinating because it sort of takes maternal agency right out. You know, the woman is just the container at that point, just the sort of husk. And it's the baby's task to free itself. I think that's on a sliding scale. I'm not sure everybody saw it quite as dramatically as that. But there's another strand which sees childbirth as, as we would say today, labor, like women's work. It was a form of work and that they had to sort of behave themselves and do it properly. So then as now, they had no idea why labor starts at a particular moment. We still don't. But once it started, then it was a very different kind of ritual to what we have today. There was a call the midwife. There was no hospital birth at all. And women had already invited their gossips, their women, friends, neighbors, family to attend them during the long hours of labor. And so all of those women are gathered in that room to kind of see this woman through to motherhood and see it work. There's a lot of advice in the various popular manuals about different positions, what to do if this happens, what to do if that happens. So there's certainly very active management of birth, I would say. I'm finding your modern references really helpful because when I was trying to get labour to come on, I tried everything that they say to do. You know, you have a curry and you eat pineapple and raspberry leaf tea and clary sage oil. And there's this long list of things that they say to do, none of which did anything. And none of which, <laughs> in the experience of many of my friends, did anything. And I think that it is so easy to assume that we know everything today and that it's all medicalized. But actually, that there's still much of it is mysterious. I think it's a really helpful way of comparing ourselves to this period. Yes, and that we don't know everything and that knowledge changes. I feel as a historian of medicine, I teach a lot of undergraduate students who want to be physicians. And I feel like, you know, my hidden agenda in teaching them is often humility that, you know, they think modern medicine has all the answers, but actually it doesn't. And that's not how knowledge works. 50 years from now, some of what we do is going to look barbaric. And I teach that in part by trying to teach them to have respect for medicine in earlier time periods. I think they come in thinking, oh, I have newt toe frog, kind of witchcraft and weird, disgusting remedies. And, you know, my mission is to make that not the case. There's sufferers, there's healers, there's people in pain, there's people who are scared. That's what it's about. So thinking about change then. So if we have these ideas around at the beginning of the 16th century, what's changing over the following two centuries, say? Well, at the level of bedside practice, I'd say not a whole lot until the 18th century. In the 18th century, and I'm mostly speaking about England here, obstetrical forceps start to get used. Obstetrical forceps had been invented a while before that, but in England, they were a trade secret of one family, the Chamberlain family. And eventually, 
as they started to die out, word got out in the late 1730s. There's actually a book published that explains it. Forceps are important in what's called an obstructed birth, where basically the baby's head is sort of stuck in the birth canal. And most of those ended very unhappily before forceps. There's a lot of argument about how frequently or infrequently forceps were needed actually to be used. But this also created a role for what we call man midwives. So for the first time, men were called in to deliver a normal birth. Previously, surgeons might have called in if things had gotten drastically wrong and various surgical remedies would be tried. But for the first time, men are actually going to deliver a living baby. There's still plenty of midwives. It doesn't completely change things, but the advent of forceps does change the playing field in terms of certain kinds of obstructive births. I also think that over the course of the 18th century, there is a sort of some small improvements in midwifery education, not in a formal way, but I think there's slightly more educated midwives practicing. So that's the sort of practice side of childbirth. In terms of theory, I see a real sort of divide between what ordinary people think and what elite scientists are thinking. Because in the 17th century, they do come to think about, well, how do new beings get created? It's a classic Aristotelian problem. It's called generation, like how do new beings come into being? And they come up with all of these theories. By the late 17th century, they have this set of theories that we call preformation, which is the idea that all living beings are always already created and they're like nesting Russian dolls, like inside, inside, inside. And you're either a spermist or an ovist. You're either like, it's all inside the egg, in which case it's all about the woman, or it's all inside the sperm. And there's this sort of conceptual like thinking of these, like all of humanity encased in a tiny spermatozoan is just kind of mind blowing. But it was a new theory. And as I said, like, how would you know? Anton von Leeuwenhoek actually sees little spermatozoans swimming. He has sex with his wife, hops out of bed, <laughs> literally, like within five minutes, has this stuff from her vagina under his microscope and sees these little things swimming around. Sadly, we don't know much what she thought about that experience. So there are kind of new ideas about how new beings get made, but in some ways they're so theoretical that there's not like a clinical payoff of any kind. Even they first see a mammalian set ovum in, I think it's 1827 or 1828, under a microscope, it's a dog's ovum. Again, it doesn't really have immediate clinical payoff. So I think the story is as much of continuity as it is of change. So even the sort of conceptual change that might be happening at a, this elite level isn't going to be affecting what most ordinary women and men on the ground think about what's going on. As far as I can tell, yeah. I mean, the same kinds of Popular manuals get sold. The same ideas seem to be at play. And there's not like a rigid wall between the elite and the popular either. I would never want to say that. Because if you read the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, those men are interested in the same kinds of weird monster births and stuff like that as ordinary people are. They may have various explanations, but they're interested in the same phenomena. And sometimes they even have the same explanation. One of the things that often comes up in the pamphlets is the monstrous births. I'm thinking of one of the ones you include in your book, which is out of the strange news out of Kent from 1609. Uh, does that one come to mind? I mean, tell us about these sort of things, these monstrous births and what they look like and how they were understood. Well, I mean, I'd start off by saying that 
I think it's important that we talk about the topic with some kind of respect because the birth of a profoundly deformed individual is always a tragedy and it always it's a struggle to try to explain. And so when these things happened in the past, again, it's a struggle for interpretation. What happened? Why? And there's a range of explanations. Some of it is religious. You know, God is sending a message here. And it's either a message that is about individual misdoings of the parents, that they were having too much sex or having too much fun or improper sex or whatever, whatever, whatever. That's a fairly common explanation. Or God is sending it as a warning to the whole community, which seems harsh to us, but there's a very famous image of an individual born that appears to have a cross on their chest. And this was supposed to presage a war in the late 1500s. There's this sort of event at Ravenna that involves the Pope. And this was supposed to be like a warning of this. So sometimes it's a warning. It's telling you what's coming. Other times it's a comment on what happened. It's sort of divine punishment. But then there's all these other ideas about how it happens. Sometimes they think about the womb as like, a mold into which a new being is cast and formed almost like metal. And so it's like if the womb has like the wrong confirmation, then the new being is going to be like faulty in that way. What an interesting kind of model for what the womb does. Some interesting scholarships have been done about how once we have movable type printing, the model of like pouring hot metal into the mold for letters is kind of like the model of the new being being formed in the womb. It's both about a sort of, sort of impression being made, if you will. And I laugh when I think about that because I remember when I was trying to get pregnant, there was a truck next to me in traffic and it was called Maryland Reproduction. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. And of course, it was a company that dealt with copiers and Xeroxing. So very much that sort of translation can still happen today. The way that monstrosity gets made that's fascinated me for years because of the gender politics of it is what they call the theory of the maternal imagination, which means that what a woman thinks about or desires or sees can get impressed upon the form of her unborn child. This can happen right at the moment of conception. One of the most famous stories is of a white couple having sex in bed and there's a painting that has a black man on the bedroom wall and her eyes stray to the painting at the fatal moment and her child is born black because that image literally goes into her eyes and immediately to her womb and forms this new being that's being made right then. And it speaks to a kind of gender politics of pregnancy because what happens is that pregnant women's desires must be attended to because everyone knows really bad things can happen if they don't get what they want which in early modern English society is not normally how women get treated, but it also problematizes female desire, right? It makes women's wants and wishes into dangerous things that can disrupt the patriline in really profound ways. So on the one hand, it speaks to the lived experience of pregnant women. Today, we talk about cravings. You know, women want what they want, and it gives a language and a form to that and a kind of legitimacy they often thought that the kind of birthmarks we still call strawberry marks were from a pregnant woman craving fruit out of season. And she, you know, thought about it, wanted it, couldn't have it, and it marked her offspring. 
you know, women's desires get out of line and bad things happen. So I think it's a fascinating example of how gender relations are not cast in stone. They're always being reworked, re-rehearsed. They sort of turn out the same way often, but it's a contest. It's not that people just follow this hierarchy automatically. So does this idea mean that when we get situations of what are called monstrous births, when we get somebody born who is disabled or deformed in some way, some of the accounts are of giving birth to a cat or a child that looks like a cat or a frog or that sort of thing. Does that suggest transgressive desire on the part of the woman and therefore it is her fault? Well, yes and no. That's what I think is so interesting about this. Because on the one hand, yes, because women are creatures of emotion and feeling even then and they can't control themselves. But there's a flip side of that, which is everyone understands that pregnancy sort of almost produces these kinds of yearnings and that that is the state of pregnancy and that is what it is. So there's a way in which I think desire is licensed in a very particular way at that moment that it isn't licensed throughout most of women's lives. So it's very double-edged. And I think that's interesting. Life isn't simple. There's something very deep that I haven't fully understood about the way in which fathers can never be sure that their child is theirs. That in theory, resemblance is what proves kinship. Like if you look like your father, then you are your father's. But there was these running series of jokes and anecdotes about women having sex with a lover, but carefully imagining their husband at the crucial moment. So you'd think it kind of takes the fun out of adulterous sex, to be honest, but there's this sense in which women can be so duplicitous that they are very carefully covering their tracks. And so, you know, the baby doesn't look like the lover, the baby looks like the husband, and no one's the wiser. Again, that speaks to really profound gender anxieties about women and sex and women's desires being always out of control. Women were thought of as the lustier of the two sexes, which we've sort of forgotten that. We think of, you know, the myths about Victorian sexuality that, you know, all that was shut down. Those are myths, but nevertheless, women were not the lustier of the two sexes after about 1750. But before that, they were, and those desires were dangerous. You know, you never knew what might happen. So I think a lot of these narratives, the way I read them is, these are stories about gender relations. They're stories about how babies get made, but they're really stories about the relations between men and women, et cetera, et cetera. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this 
a perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And I'm Matt Lewis. And all this month on Gone Medieval, we're delving deep into the pivotal moments that shaped the destiny of England. The Battle of Hastings. Three men struggle for supremacy. The Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. The Viking warlord, Harold Hardrada. And the ambitious Norman duke, William the Conqueror. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. mentioned that, broadly speaking, in the Tudor period, delivering babies is women's work. It's not a place where you get men. But is it not until the 18th century that we do get men invading that all-female zone, or do we get anything of that earlier in the 17th? Men do get called in, like I said, when things are tragically bad, when things are really wrong. And it's horrible, but their job was basically to dismember the fetus and get it out of there so the mother survived in bloody, awful, terrible things. There's a manuscript written by a man who did that kind of work in the late 17th century that gives us a lot of insight into those sort of emergencies that he was only called in when things had gone so badly wrong that all they could hope for was a living mother. They couldn't hope for a living baby. That changes after the 1730s when men do start to get called in for perfectly normal deliveries or they get called in much earlier when it's obvious that a forceps could really help. I mean, they don't take over. Still, I think most babies are delivered by midwives, so it's really only in the 18th century that men find a space in the birthing room. So if we've got midwives attending women in labour, what sort of remedies could be given to deal with the pain? Sadly, it doesn't look like much. It looks like endurance was it. And we don't see pain relief on offer until really the 19th century. It was seen as what women suffered. You know, this is Eve's fault, really. All women will labor in pain. It's striking to me how little language there is in midwifery texts about pain. I think it's so taken for granted that they almost don't speak much about it. They do try to put the woman in the position that seems to be the most comfortable for her or the best, but it's certainly not like today in the sense of like water births or that kind of thing. And I think there's 
potential disciplinary aspect when if you imagine a young woman in labor and there's all these older women in the room who are basically telling her, suck it up. This is how it is. I don't think we should over romanticize them. I think they did a lot of good, but I don't think we should make them heroes of the narrative necessarily. And obviously it's very difficult to get at statistics for this period, but what's your sort of feeling about the rates of fatalities for mothers or for children in childbirth? Because I found so many different sort of estimations of this. It is very challenging to know. I think the best scholarship on this for me, for maternal mortality, is that women who lived in a sort of average-sized village would know of a woman in the village who died as a result of childbirth. Now, the numbers are actually smaller than some people have estimated, but I think risk doesn't work that way for humans. You know, if you know one, that's quite enough. And so I think that women very clearly understood that they were potentially at risk of losing their lives in childbirth. Even if the numbers are not huge, nevertheless, it was seen as very, very dangerous. I was talking before about how midwives could have a disciplinary role for an unwed mother who hadn't said who the father was yet. Midwives interrogated such women during childbirth to find out who the father was so they could chase him for child support. I know it's awful. And the belief was because that woman was at risk of dying, she would not dare to lie. Whatever she said in labor would be the truth because you can't go to your grave with a lie at your lips. So that's how they saw it, that this was this kind of risk. And women did die in childbirth. For babies, that's a kind of vast, dark abyss that I'm not sure we really know because stillbirths don't get recorded and it's possible neonatal deaths don't get recorded either. It is true that midwives could perform emergency baptisms And if a child was baptized, in theory, it could be buried in the churchyard and recorded in the parish register. But I think there's a vast number that we simply cannot know. I've done a fair amount of work on a midwife in the early 18th century named Sarah Stone. She practices in the southwest of England and eventually comes to London. And it's horrific and gripping reading her book because she talks about her actual work, her cases. It's very clear there. She's sorry when she can't save the baby, but that's a kind of fact of work life. She really cares about saving the mother. That's her real goal, and that's a success in some ways. And I just think it's a very different world to our own, and it's hard for us emotionally to wrap our heads around that. But I think infant loss, I don't mean they didn't care, they weren't sad, they were, and they did care, but it was in some ways a fact of life in a way that it is no longer for us in the developed world. This is also bring stuff. And of course, I suppose the fact is that once they were married, they had no control over becoming pregnant. Indeed, as we have demonstrated, one doesn't have any control over becoming pregnant in terms of making it happen today, but we can do things to stop it happening. And at the time, presumably, contraception really wasn't a thing. There's this very large and hard to understand gray zone between being pregnant and not being pregnant. By that, I mean that in the humoral system, it was really vital that women menstruate. They had to get rid of that bad stuff, right? Otherwise, bad things would happen. And so there's a whole class of medicines called amenagogues that are designed to bring on the menses. So I think it's possible that a woman who's missed two periods would take some of these herbal preparations to get back on track, but she might also be inducing an early termination. I think that's where family limitation is really happening in this period. 
because we know that some of those amenagogue herbs could also be classed as abortifacients. And I don't mean by that that these women are going, oh yeah, it's all subterfuge, I know what to do. I think that instead there is this gray zone where you might be pregnant and you might not. And it isn't really a thing yet. It's not really a state of being yet. And you need to be back on track and you're not hoping for a child right then. And so I think that's really how it happened. And it's almost impossible to recover. Presumably because it's before the quickening, which is when they first feel the child move, which they think to be the soul entering the womb. They wouldn't conceive anything morally wrong before about five months in trying to bring on their menses. Exactly. So quickening, we now think it happens between the fourth and the fifth month. I see no reason to think that women were biologically super different those centuries ago. And that was in some ways when pregnancy became a fact. It was a real thing because although these popular manuals that I read have advice on how to tell if you're pregnant, you know, various tests involving what does the urine look like? What do her eyes look like? What do her nipples look like? There's all these like signs, but in fact, there's so many signs because none of them are terribly good and none of them seem definitive. And we have to remember that women were much more poorly nourished often and they were breastfeeding for more of their adult lives. So they didn't have as much regular periods as we do. And we all know that women's lived experience doesn't look like those advertisements anyway, but the fantasy that like we're like clocks every 28 days or whatever, it's not true today, but it certainly wasn't true then. A missed period doesn't have the same warning sign to them as it does to us. And of course, we live in at-home pregnancy testing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in a way, they had it. They could like look at their urine in a bowl, but it wasn't in any way definitive the way it is today. So I do think there's this period of immense ambiguity that we have to read sympathetically, not as just like, oh, they're just covering it all up. They know what's going on. I really think it was a different experience. There's a case I've worked on of an unmarried mother, almost certainly raped in her workplace. She's a servant and she addresses herself to a medical man called a surgeon in the French at the time at about seven months asking for something to bring on her flowers as they call it and he says it's too late I mean obviously she must have actually been relatively big with child by that point and something you could hide quite well but it's interesting to think that maybe at three months or something she might well have asked for that and been given something Yes, I don't think that medical men would have hesitated. I have seen in the 18th century, a few medical men begin to get a bit edgy. And they say that women are asking them for medication to provoke an abortion. And once inoculation for smallpox is brought from the East to England in the 18th century, there are doctors who mutter to each other, that women are seeking inoculation because they think that it will provoke an abortion. But in a way, this is also one of those male stories about women that may say as much about what men are thinking as it does about women's practice. It probably speaks to both. But I think it's Hans Sloan goes to Jamaica in the 1690s. He complains that like enslaved women are seeking medication from him. And he's like, I just sent them away without anything. That's ethical in our terms, but he thought that they were trying to abort. And so he just wouldn't give them medicine. And why would he think that? But maybe they were, maybe both sides are true. We just can't tell.
I talked to Matthew Lyons in an earlier podcast about how the dissolution of monasteries was something that had a massively gendered effect because they had provided aid for women in pregnancy. Can you tell us a bit about the impact of the Reformation on childbirth practices? I think of those monasteries and convents as kind of like these sources of spiritual power dotted in the landscape. And women who were going to give birth wanted some of that spiritual power to see them through. And so the way this worked was that they could borrow a relic from the local church, convent, monastery, and hold that relic on their body when they were giving birth. And they believed that that gave them some sort of divine help at this very exigent moment of their lives. And we know everyone from Queens on down did this. Now, I don't know if the poorest woman in the village was going to be able to borrow a relic. I'd love to know. But it was pretty common practice and must have afforded immense psychological comfort. And so once the monasteries and convents are all closed down, that's not on offer anymore. And as the Protestant faith emerges in fits and starts from what had been before, they're not into the intercession of saints either. And so those relics, they sort of start disappearing as well. And so a whole array of what must have been for women who were, you know, religiously inclined, say, or maybe any woman, a huge source of support just goes away. The other side of that is that women would also give offerings to the statue of the Virgin in their local church as a thank offering when they came through the other side. And I think of that like a statue of the Virgin in a church adorned with the things that women gave. They put clothing on the statues. They had silver rings on the statues. It's like a visual testament to women's childbearing that if you don't know, you just see a statue of the Virgin. But if you know, and you know, Mrs. X gave that and Mrs. Y gave that, it is a way to put women's reproductive labors like right in the body of the church, in the community, visible for all. And I think that then when that goes away, that's a blow because that whole sense of identification with the Virgin Mary and the way in which those devotions spoke to women's work, it's all gone. So, I mean, I don't want to sound overly nostalgic, but I do think that the earlier faith had spaces for reproductive women in a way that the new one just did not. And I suppose there's also something going on in terms of this is a period in which there are fears about witches increasingly and people are being executed as witches and we know that maybe 80% of those across Europe are women. So what's the relationship between mothering and witchcraft? Well, that's complicated. It used to be thought in a simplistic way that the witches were midwives and midwives were witches. That's way too simplistic and it doesn't really hold up. The sort of archetypal woman accused of witchcraft is an older, poor woman who'd been living kind of marginally for years, if not decades, and who curses and asks for stuff that she doesn't get, have kind of accumulated in local memory. Frankly, most midwives are a little bit more powerful than that in the village, a little bit better off. On the other hand, birth was understood to be the sort of magical thing that it truly is, the creation of a new being, amazing. And 
once the Protestant faith begins to take hold, the male clergy begins to worry more about what kinds of unorthodox practices might be happening in a birthing room, what kinds of charms might be spoken that they don't want spoken. Now, what is the midwife doing in there? And so I was really startled when I was researching this to find that bishop's visitations, that is when a bishop sends his minion to the local parish and they have to fill out a questionnaire, like, how are they doing? Are people coming to church? Is this working okay? The part of the questions they asked were about practices in the birthing room, which again, as men, they had no business knowing. They knew nothing. But the power of their fantasies was strong that things might be happening in there that were not okay. And that's tied up, of course, with the fact that midwives could perform an emergency baptism to save a soul that wasn't going to linger long. And that's really amazing. Like women are performing a rite of the church. What? (laughs) You know, that just does not happen. So you can see how that power goes with these kinds of male fears about what superstitious practices might be happening. From another side, many of those superstitious practices what used to be the relics and stuff. There's all kinds of things people do in African-American midwifery in the American South in the late 19th and 20th century. Sometimes people will put a knife under the bed to cut the pain. We're like, how would that work? But if it affords the woman in labor comfort, I'm all for it. So I think there's always a range of cultural practices that probably never make it into print that might be happening and that, you know, glimmers of those perhaps caught the attention of these clerics and that they worried. I see that as part and parcel of the new faith, not as part of the old. And if we've got the massive event that is the Reformation and its aftermath in the 16th century in Britain, we've got the Civil War of the 1650s. And this is disconnecting in all sorts of ways. And it's in the middle of this period of time that we have this important midwifery manual that appears from Nicholas Culpepper. Tell me about this. What was new about it? I always say that I can recognize Culpepper's prose anywhere because he has an amazing prose style. He has this almost demotic way of speaking. He will use a proverb or whatever. He's also incredibly, in some ways, confident, not to say almost arrogant, about what he knows. And I think what's distinctive about his text, especially in this context of the world turned upside down was the world turned upside down for gender relations also. If you imagine the monarch as the emblem of every household, a little commonwealth, having the king executed is a really powerful gender statement that that kind of masculine authority is no longer in control, even though, yes, of course, Cromwell's also male, et cetera, et cetera. There is a kind of hierarchy of power that is vastly disrupted. In addition to all the stuff about women are preaching in the streets, they're protesting, women are taking action as never before, that period is a period of massive gender upheaval. And so Culpepper publishes in the early 1650s, and his book is in many ways claiming that male knowledge of the female body is accurate. He says the book is for midwives, and he scares them, he warns them that God's gonna hold them to account for their work, they'd better do it right. They better master their subject, which, I mean, we would all be in favor of, actually. But the way he invokes it in that threatening way, I find a little much. And then he claims to know the female body by vision and by anatomy. He boasts about the fact that he's dissected dead pregnant women, which almost no one 
had ever been able to do because the very few bodies available for anatomical dissection were executed criminals and women who were pregnant could bleed the belly and thus not be executed or at least postpone their execution. They did see a moral wrong in executing an unborn child. That was not okay. So that meant that almost no pregnant female bodies were available for dissection. But he boasts that he has, and he boasts about the way his eyes are what make knowledge. And I would say that's really counter to what midwives' knowledge is. Midwives' knowledge is knowledge of the hand. It's knowledge of touch. That is how they know. They know through their fingertips. A very different kind of haptic knowledge. And I won't say that Culpepper's a shot across the bows exactly, but he is arguing for a very different knowledge base where he knows from this way and he's going to tell women what's going on and then women are going to do what he says. That's an attempt to create a kind of gender authority that we don't see in the previous texts. And then what happens is his text is really popular. I mean, everything he writes, the man has a golden pen, but it takes off and then other people start writing midwifery texts. And from the 50s on, we see this whole flowering of a new array of texts, almost all by men. First text by a woman is the 1670s. Next one isn't until the 1730s. It's almost all men writing about women's bodies. A lot of it is plagiarized from one another, taken from a continental source, whatever. But we see this really lively set of texts about the female reproductive body in a way that we hadn't seen before. But Culpepper is a very distinctive voice. I could carry on with this conversation all day. This is so fascinating, but I probably ought to just ask you one more question, which relates to this, because we've been thinking about this manual. It would be really interesting to know what other sources you use to understand attitudes towards the workings of the female body, and also with what caution you must use them. Well, I'll read cheap print, as we call it, all day. I find it fascinating. So cheap print is a term originally coined by Tessa Watt, and it refers to all of these small, inexpensive printed materials that are like ballads, little pamphlets telling stories of horrible crimes or whatever, all these small, inexpensive books. I even use playing cards in the book because I thought playing cards were a fascinating source I hadn't seen historians use very much. And there was a set that was really helpful for me. We have to be really cautious because I think Sometimes people assume they're small and they're cheap, and that means they're read by the working classes. And we know that's not true. We have ballads that are extant today because Samuel Pepys collected them. And, you know, Samuel Pepys was on the make. He was doing nicely. Thank you. He was not working class. And they were consumed by a broad array of people, but we can't segregate them, as it were, just to the working class We can't even assume that you had to be able to read to consume some of those texts because ballads were sung in the street. They were pinned up on alehouse walls. You would have at least consumed the illustrations. So I think we have to be a bit cautious in not assuming that we understand the readership of those sources. But I think we can be confident that they're what I think of as the lowest common denominator of print. They're the closest thing to what ordinary people might have had access to. And of course, we go online and we can pull up as many ballads as we want. First of all, only a small fraction of them survive. So we're only dealing with an imperfect record. And we can have all this compare and contrast work that, you know, keeps us historians busy for months and years. But in lived experience, it would have been much more episodic and you would have had this and not that. And 
this and not that. So we always have to keep in mind that the kinds of cross-references that excite us were only there for some people on occasion. I still think the sources are fascinating. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the publishers of those materials. I think they knew the market. I think they were quite successful because they understood what people wanted. Now, what they thought people wanted and what people actually got from the text, there's a huge gulf there as well. So we're always struggling with those kinds of unknowns But those source materials do offer us a way of understanding people whose thoughts and feelings never entered the written record and can give us a glimmer of some thoughts, maybe provoke some questions about what those people might have believed and felt. That's just wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful tour. I couldn't believe how much time had passed Um, through the sort of wonders of reproduction, both very much then but also a little bit now and it's been really enjoyable thank you you're very welcome it's been a pleasure thank you for having me if you enjoyed this episode please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media and also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment thank you History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.